Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Joining me in this last episode of 2021 is Adam Bristol. Hey, Andre, how's it going today? It's pretty good. I'm really excited to wrap up this year, although I'm a little bit nervous about what 2022 holds. Yeah, I was going to say that it, it doesn't feel that long ago that we had a year-end wrap-up episode. And here we are again with another wrap-up show. And yeah, heading into 22, I think perhaps... The optimism of the calendar turning to 21 is feeling like it's, I don't know, tenuous at best. (laughs) Yeah. And as you can tell, I think like a lot of scientists right now in the world, there's a lot more left to discover and finding out what's true can be pretty challenging. And one thing that I've noticed is that it does feel like 2021 was both an incredibly short and an incredibly long year. Like you're right. It feels like just yesterday we were doing this kind of wrap up. We were locking down, you know, there was going to be no holiday. You know, it was the COVID that stole Christmas last year. We were in Hawaii, as, as a matter of fact. But the vaccines were on their way. It was really hopeful. So and that was a hopeful time. We just thought we just got to get through until we can get vaccinated and then things will be OK. And here we are with Omicron threatening to shut us all down again as we um, come into 2022. I mean, that's where science and society collide. It's the fact that the world is not static. The world is a highly dynamic place. There's lots of uh, interacting variables. And uh, if you know your immunology combined with your virology, that these things are are rapidly adapting and will adapt back to them. And so uh, it's exhausting, but I'm still optimistic uh, long term. But it looks like we're not out of the woods yet. No, but when I look back at the year, we both agreed to pick a couple of our, um, I wouldn't like to say favorite, because that's like choosing a favorite child, um, but rather just um, episodes that we wanted to highlight at the end of the year. And it really does seem like forever ago that I talked to Tim Spector. That was um, halfway through the year, episode 340. And remember, Tim Spector, I I guess he's an epidemiologist, but he also has a huge focus on nutrition. and, And we tried his Zoe program. Yeah, we did. And I think that the, the, some of the data we gathered on our own physiology and metabolism was actually really insightful. It was you really know, I mean, this notion of, you know, how does your re- body respond to food? I think we're often prescribed as we grow up, you know, what a healthy diet. And I think that's largely accepted. And I think the guardrails are 
probably pretty good, but that doesn't account for the individual variabilities. And I think you and I discovered just how different Mm -hmm. your body responds to the same food versus how my body responds to it. And we had some standardized meals to do that with. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, if our listeners aren't familiar with the the, the sort of Zoe protocol is that you eat a bunch of these muffins that they have carefully <laughs> constructed, although they, they taste like they're made by a machine, um, to have certain nutritional content. And so everybody eats the same muffins and then you track your blood glucose and various other factors and you see how you respond. I actually first learned about the muffins um, through an episode of Gastropod. And so sure enough, uh, that's a podcast with Cynthia Graber and Nicola Twilley. And we'll talk about Nicola in just a minute. But sure enough, yeah, the way that you metabolize the muffins and the way that I metabolize the muffins was pretty different. And it's cool to be able to now, of course, they're getting a a larger and larger database of participants. So you can put your results in your physiology or rather physiological response in context with a greater population of people. So it has, I mean, it's, it's changed a little bit. I mean, sometimes old habits die hard and I'm kind of a creature of habit like most people, but I think it has made me adapt a little of my eating habits, in particular trying to pair some sort of fatty or protein-rich food with something that's more of a higher sugar content, which will help to blunt that glucose spike. Yeah, I learned a very high glucose spike. And so, you know, now with my donut, I add a piece of cheese. There you go. So you're, you're, you know, which isn't the worst thing, right? So you figure, you know, like a lot of French cuisine, of course, is a lot of, you know, uh, fats and butters and... Not so much sugars, though. Not so much sugars, that's true. (laughs) Um, So speaking of gastropod, what about Nicola? Well, I mean, the the podcast that really sticks out in my mind, of course, was Nicola Twilley's conversation with you on, on... the book she co-authored with her husband called, I think, Until Proven Safe, right? Until Proven Safe. Until Proven Safe, which was about the history of quarantine and quarantine measures, which you might think, oh boy, did she slap that together, (laughs) you know, during during quarantine for coronavirus. But no. No, it turns out to have been the germ, uh, the seed of that idea came quite a while before. And it's a richly researched and very instructive history of quarantine and the reaction of of governments and societies and groups of people to outbreaks of infectious disease. The reason why it struck with me, so if you don't, if if, if your listeners haven't listened to that, you know, episode 355 with Nicola Twilley, I guess one reason why I really liked it is that I'm a huge proponent of what is new is often what's been forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so for all of us, we really haven't lived through anything like a infectious disease outbreak that would require these sort of public health measures that have have kind of come about at certain points over time, most notably during the 1918 influenza outbreak. And so rediscovering the issues, the techniques, the strategies, obviously now it's right in front of our face and we're living it, but there's a lot of lessons there. And it's not like we need to be uh, doing these things on the fly. Of course, we have to react as needed, but it seems that Nicola's book provides insight into lots of strategies that could have been used in a proactive way versus just a reactive sense. But as she described, even the WHO folks were saying, oh, this is simply just history, right? We're, we're beyond that now. We don't need that now. And yet it could be a very effective strategy. It is an effective strategy and could be done even better depending on how we 
structure quarantining. Well, it's really interesting to see now how the Omicron variant and its various characteristics, I mean, the science is still so new. We don't know exactly whether it is really um, just having a milder effect than Delta or whether it has like a much faster incubation time. And it's already having an effect on how, say, in Britain, for example, they have reduced the quarantine time, I think, to like five or seven days from 10 days. I think it's seven days from 10 days. And that's something that, that sort of, you know, has a really huge effect, an impact. You know, if you if you are positive and you don't have any symptoms and you're forced to stay inside a room or a house for 10 days, that's a big difference if you can have three days of those back, you know, especially for people whose jobs don't provide them with the luxury of being able to be at home and still get paid. Right. I mean, I I hesitate to go on record talking about anything (laughs) coronavirus related because by the time this podcast comes out, you know, our listeners who are in the future it all could be changed, I think. But, but the interesting thing is that I do feel like people are at least talking about different strategies for quarantine and isolation as the pandemic wears on, as yeah. we learn more, as these variants come on board. And so it's not just, again, it's not just a sledgehammer approach. It does seem to be more nuanced than that. But who knows, maybe a few weeks from now we'll be locked down again and yeah. back to March 2020. Well, I mean, one of the, I guess, before we move on, one of the key insights from that conversation is that there is an important distinction between isolation and, mm-hmm. and, and quarantine, right? right? So isolation is where someone who has a confirmed case needs to set distance themselves because they are, in fact, infectious, and we want to limit the spread. Quarantining is more about, you know, people who are otherwise healthy or presumed healthy, mm-hmm. but possibly could be mm-hmm. infected. And and what? how do you basically rustle up those people and do it in a humane and respectful and and in a way that is provides their needs and is basically a, it's a public good essentially by yeah. doing that so it's it's really kind of a thorny area philosophically and ethically so anyhow it struck uh, really struck a chord with me not just because we're living it but because there was such a rich antecedent thread that certainly I wasn't aware of but I think I'm guessing a lot of our listeners weren't aware of either very important book this year And shout out to Gastropod, you know, because it's a great podcast about food and science and how the two interconnect, uh, intersect. And um, it's uh, it's another another thing for you to listen to if you're a fan of Inquiring Minds. I'm sure you'll love Gastropod. So one of my favorite episodes was talking again to Mary Roach, whom I adore. This was episode 361. She has a new book out called Fuzz. And uh, it's about sort of how nature and humans or wildlife, I should say, and humans interact in a way that, you know, in some ways it's like when nature breaks the law, I think is the is the tagline there. And it was really interesting to hear about these different ways in which communities are addressing issues in which wildlife sort of compromise uh, human life. So for example, in Aspen, there's a big bear problem. And there's a notorious bear who's named Fat Albert, who used to, you know, break into people's homes and go straight to the refrigerator and actually do a pretty minimal amount of damage to the rest of the house. And so he actually lived quite a bit longer than another bear who would have just been more destructive was. And just this whole relationship about the things that we do as humans that encourage wildlife to interact with us, and then that puts us in a position where we then have to chastise the wildlife. And, you know, who's guilty or innocent there is another question. I love Mary because while she's not a comedian, she really has a knack yeah. for capturing 
the absurdity or she has a very lively style of writing mm -hmm. and bringing a lot of the individuals, her experiences as she's researching these, you know, really unusual and not fringe, but, uh, you know, little uh, interstitial spaces of yeah. science is always makes for a very lively discussion and a lively read. So, yeah, I love Mary Broach. I mean, I'll read anything she writes. <laughs> so what else what else do you want to highlight? Well, this is going to be an odd one. I think you might you might be surprised, but I'll okay. tell you, I think once I describe some of the compelling aspects of it, you'll say, oh, I can see why you like that. Because this was your inner, your discussion with Logan Yuri, who mm. is a behavioral scientist, mm -hmm. data scientist, who's now uh, working on, on dating, human yeah, dating. Yeah, online dating. Online dating. Yeah. I think she's with some app or something. But she was previously at Google, has a great academic pedigree. And so you discussed kind of the evolution of the field of almost quantitative approaches to yeah. uh, human dating. How do you optimize finding a mate? Yeah. And I'm a happily married, you know, serial monogamist. So oh, it's good not, to hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, why I like this type of discussion is not necessarily, although I think it, if you were someone who was looking for uh, a really compatible long-term mate, I think you would be wise to try to stack the deck in your favor yep. and understand some of these dynamics and what are the attributes and, and, and how do you basically maximize your chance of finding success there. But I, if I take a step back, it's part of a broader collection of, I guess, human activities that historically have so much folk wisdom in them mm -hmm. that you might think, like, what does science have to say about matters of the heart, <laughs> right? I mean, it is so, it's an area that would seem would be almost impenetrable to science. But the truth is, yes, if you need to operationalize some features of it. If you want to improve something, you need to be able to measure it. And so there could be some arguments around what the best way of doing that is. But that process over time, I think, can lead to real insights in an area that, you know, heretofore people would think would be, I don't know, just, just your opinions or passed down wisdom of your grandparents or, you know, philosophers and poets and songwriters. And yet science can actually have a seat at the table and provide some very useful insights. The, la the other thing I'll mention too, before, I, before you jump in, because now that it just reminded me, is that the insights you get are not prescriptive, but rather they're about improving your chances. So what I mean by that, it's almost probabilistic. So Logan would say, if she were here and if I remember the discussion, would say that I can't tell you if you do X, X, Y, and Z, you're definitely going to, like this mate, yes, you're going to fall in love with that person. In the same way that often with a lot of genetic information we can get from things like 23andMe and others, there's no genetic determinism. There's no behavioral online dating app determinism, but rather you can get a sense of likelihood. You can get a sense of kind of probability or, or, or improvement of your chances. And that's about as far as you'll get, because these things are complicated, multifactorial processes. And yet that, that still allows you, I think, to make much better decisions than if you didn't have that information at all. So I really like those two elements. One is that it's an area where you might think that really, what does science have to say about human dating? You know, the spark that you fall in love with someone. And then also, so it can help you there. But then again, the nature of the information isn't just like, ding, that is your, you have found your one and only, but rather you're going to help to stack the deck and have an insight into what is going to lead you down a path to success or not, even if you can't tell exactly where you'll end up. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, for for much of human history, it seems as though partnerships were really built on practical matters. This whole idea that you marry someone for romantic love is a fairly novel approach. And so then to turn it into now a scientific approach that goes, you know, beyond just the legal matters, but rather maybe also incorporates compatibility and values and maybe how a, what a person wants out of life um, is kind of interesting. But that also, you know, reminds me of Esther Perel and this idea that we often put too much on our partner's shoulders. We expect them now to be everything for us. You know, our legal partners, our business partners, our, our romantic partners, our co-parents, our, you know, all of these, our, our social network, our friends, and that sometimes that those expectations are really out of sync with reality. And maybe some of these uh, data science tools might help us recognize that we can't get everything we want out of a partner, that that's an unreasonable assumption. In fact, healthy partnerships also involve some space. Yeah. And Logan mentioned the work from Eli Finkel from, I think, Northwestern, who's written about and studied exactly what you described as the evolution and elevation of the marriage from something that might have been more practical in the to something that has gone up Maslow's hierarchy of needs to something almost giving you the self-actualization you need. So I remember her saying just one quote that you just remind me of saying that in today's society, the best marriages are the best marriages of all time. Right. Because in a way, they're succeeding within a rubric of being all encompassing, you know, being everything to each other's partners. Right. So that's actually pretty extraordinary by historical standards. So hard to hard to achieve. (laughs) Although, honey, I think I think we're doing okay. Oh, so far. (laughs) (laughs) So. There are two favorite books that I had, and I don't know if the interviews quite hit the level of uh, of enthusiasm I had for the books themselves. But my probably my two favorite books of the year were most recently Henry G's Very Short History yeah. <laughs> of Everything. I uh, mean, it really, table. you know, I love George R.R. Martin. I love Game of Thrones. And this is like Game of Thrones, but real. Yeah. As in, <laughs> it's just um, so well written. Yeah. 
the best understanding it's, of the history of life on this planet. It's really wonderful. Yeah. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it because it's just so rich in detail and so readable and just, it's just a fascinating ride. And it really made me appreciate, it actually made me more hopeful, even though one of the messages is, yeah, we're, you know, our star is going to peter out. Um, yeah, in about 4 billion years. Yeah, but... We'll be, I, I, I um, mean... But in the meantime, like, what a great ride it's been. Yeah, no question. And then the second book is Annals as Being You about consciousness. And, uh, you know, I just see a lot of my neuroscientist friends, especially ones that I went to grad school with, um, like Lucina O'Dean and Valerie Carr. And, you know, these are now professors in various locations. And and we've all at some point tweeted about our love for this book and for, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that he's really helped capture so much of the latest research on consciousness into a book that is just wonderful and understandable. And I really enjoyed talking to him. Okay. Yeah. I I enjoyed the discussion. I haven't read a lot of books on consciousness. (laughs) Well, it's right there on our shelf. Because I've often felt that (laughs) they kind of go around in circles and you come out feeling like I'm well-informed, but probably no closer to the truth, if that's possible. But I'm willing to give them a shot. I mean, YouTube continues to serves up Seth's videos <laughs> yeah, for me of different yeah. talks he's given. So clearly, uh, he's a great uh, communicator. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I mean, I think you, yeah, you're probably less interested in in sort of the science of consciousness than I am. But I, you know, I I do think that it it is a fascinating take, and it's just a great kind of summary of the work from a number of different areas. And and often, when someone writes a book about consciousness, they have their own theory that that really takes the forefront and takes mm-hmm. up a lot of the book. And I feel like, yes, there is, you know. View as well, but there are also he he does a great job sort of describing all of the other alternative viewpoints as well. So, what else was on your highlight list? Well, for me personally, you know, my highlights of the year included the two science fiction authors that I had conversations with. Yeah, to be able to speak with Andy Weir about his most recent book, uh, Project Hail Mary, was a real thrill. Knowing that I'd have a chance to speak with him, I really took a lot of time to try to dig into that book and the mm-hmm. science underneath it and, uh, and and really try to, I don't get in his head and, and really think about all the different aspects of the story, which I found to be fantastic, mm-hmm. thrilling, and uh, I hope it make, they make it into a movie. Yeah, and I hope so was, too. That would be, it would make yeah, a great it would make movie. a great one. I'm sure someone's optioned the, the right character of Rocky and just, I mean, there's so many interesting parts to it. So I highly recommend if you haven't listened to my interviews with Andy Weir, again, it's hard science fiction. It's this idea of what's scientifically plausible and then taking that, extending it further into a really rich science fiction um, story. And, yeah, and the book's know, called Project Hail Mary. Project so Hail Mary. I thought it was great. I thought it was mm-hmm. great. And I think it's done extremely well and justifiably so. And then was a local author here from San Francisco named Gary Benger. And I wasn't aware of his work prior to this book being gifted to me and sat down and it quickly became one of my all-time favorite uh, science fiction stories. And to be able to talk with Gary, he's an incredibly interesting guy. You know, his background is in tech, but kind of post-retirement, if you would call it that, he's not that old. You know, he's got into philosophy and physics and just a really, really a polymath uh, and a a really interesting guy. And that book's called Unfettered Journey. That's right. Unfettered Mm -hmm. Journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I have one more recommendation, and it's one I think that is a bit more practical, but also has made so many of the top 10 lists at the end of the year, um, which I'm very happy to see because Melinda Wettermoyer is just seems like a really wonderful person. 
And her book is called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. It's it's a wonderful practical guide. And she's also done a wonderful job also of covering all kinds of other topics. Um, so I, I've, I've enjoyed watching her uh, skyrocket to uh, popularity. And and that was, a, that was a book that I think has a lot of practical implications for anybody who is in any way involved in the lives of smaller people. Younger people, I should say, not yeah. smaller people. Yeah, younger. Yeah, I, I I just eat up parenting books, you know. I'm like, help! <laughs> no, you <don't>. help! <laughs> you don't see it, but I do. Oh, I read do. a lot of those things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a tough journey, but especially during a pandemic, not trivial. But so far, we made it okay, and uh, it's because the ch- kids are dynamic too. Yeah, they you are. You know, whatever I'm dealing with now, it tends to resolve itself one way or another, and then some new issue emerges, good or bad. So, um, yeah, great. So that was the so year. <laughs> what's 20, what's 2022 going to look like for the podcast? What do you any So in 2022, you know, I'm I'm hoping that I can spend the next week or so and hopefully in conversation with you as well, figuring out what other kinds of mini series we could do that cover a topic in depth. So one of the things I loved doing in 2021 was we had this four-part series on artificial intelligence and its uh, interaction with science and society. Um, and I wonder what other kinds of those collections of thought leaders and intellectuals we might find in 2022 to highlight, to take a deeper dive on. And we, we are on episode, we've just finished, and we have more than 400 episodes, but, but you know, 370 plus interviews, because of course, some of our episodes include maybe once a year or so a rerun. I don't think actually we did any of those this year. And some once in a while are up to dates, which don't always classify as full episodes. But 370 is a lot, and I'm interested in in looking at at the ways in which we can take a deeper dive in some of these topics, um, as opposed to having a more pastiche model. Although I'm sure, you know, whenever new ideas and and new work comes across my desk, I'll want to cover it. But you know, I've also spent a lot of time this year in 2021 writing and hosting a new podcast that's going to launch with Audible, it's an Audible original. And I can't tell you that much about it, except to say that we will talk about it in 2022 as it as it comes up. Mm. Um, it's a project I'm really proud of. Yeah. So so it's the Oliver Sacks podcast, and and Oliver was a mentor, a friend. He was the reason I went into neuroscience. I love his work. Um, you know, he is a neurologist that shaped the way we think about the deficit model of neurology and how that is misguided. You know, he's at the forefront of the neurodiversity movement. And that's also something that I've taken a keener interest in now. Um, I have a couple of projects that I'm working on that that really are about um, demonstrating uh, neurodiversity is something that we should really celebrate and that sometimes the things that we take for granted in a world built for people who are, you know, even the term neurotypical is outdated these days, but people whose brains work in a certain way really misses out on uh, some of the wonderful aspects of people whose minds are, are quite different. And so I'm excited about highlighting some of that work. We did talk to Sarah Hendren this year on what can a body do is her book about uh, about the built world and people who are disabled by it. And so I'm looking forward to telling stories of people whose brains are function differently and, and um, how we might learn from them and celebrate them and accommodate them. And then this podcast will launch in April, and I'm really proud of it. We've we're just at the at the end of finishing the tenth episode, tenth and final episode, and it's just been a real journey. It would be cool if we could, um, you know, cross post maybe even like the a trailer or something. So I know it's kind of 
on Audible, but it'd be cool to have it maybe the first episode for the Patreon uh, subscribers. To yeah. Apply. And also, I think um, we'll have to have Kate Edgar on the show. Kate was oh, yeah, um, sure. Oliver's longtime editor. And it's just been a dream come true to work with her on this project. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in a recording studio with Kate and with Mark Lotto, our story editor, who was also a dream to work with. And we were just hashing out this pilot episode for the show. And it was just like, so wonderful. So I can't wait to have her and and uh, have her speak um, to the Inquiring Minds audience. Oh, I can't wait for it. That sounds great. Awesome. Well, here's to 2022. Here's to 2022. May we all get there. That's it for this episode and for 2021 on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show or any of our episodes, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds, where we post ad-free episodes every week. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Roy Halla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dela Master, and Charles Blyle, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. We literally could not do this show without you, and we are so grateful to have you on board, and we hope to see you again in 2022. This episode was produced by Daniel Link, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, along with Adam Bristol. See you in 2022. Bye, everyone. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.